0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own
1: You are listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. This is episode thirty-nine, "Rebel Without a Clue."
2: Quantum leaping around in time, I've assumed many characters, but this was my first leap back as a dirt ball. Shane Funnybone Thomas, that's your name. I'm a biker, Al. It's September 1st, 1958, and you're somewhere about an hour south of Big Sur, California.
0: I'm riding with Dylan. Now I'm as free as he is.
3: She's
2: not my problem, man. Well, no, yeah, she is. Why? When did every kid become my problem? When you wrote that book. (laughs) Hey, dang it.
0: That bike belongs to his son! Who's dead?
2: I was over there, okay? I saw guys blown apart around me, all right? So don't you talk to me about it! Stop it! Come on, baby, let's play, huh? You're
4: drunk! You don't even know what's happening! Stop it! You're hurting me!
2: This sleep has not been a whole heck of You're a lot of fun. you here to prevent a murder. So there's got a don't tell me it's Becky. One of those creeps is gonna kill her? She's found stabbed to death a beach about 30 miles north of here. Ziggy says it's going to take place in the next 24
1: hours. Welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we are talking about Rebel Without a Clue, a Scott Bakula as Sam Beckett on a motorcycle. I think that's how it's pitched in the meeting. What do you think? Yeah, I
5: guess it was more like, how do we... How do we write a story to get him on a motorcycle?
1: I think so. Uh, (laughs) We have a great episode for you today. We have an interview with the actor who played Jack Kerouac so elegantly and precisely, I think, Michael Bryan French, and that'll be later on in the show. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool to get to talk to him, and I can't wait for you guys to hear that. So, Heather, first impressions of Rebel Without a Clue?
5: I feel like, for some reason, I feel like this episode was really short. I guess it just went by quickly. Um, but it it was good. I it was a it was one of those like just normal quantum leap episodes. It it didn't go too poorly and then the happy ending at the end. So
1: it's good. It's good. Um yeah, it's weird. Episode timing, it's always about forty four minutes, depending on, you know, commercials and when it was produced. But um it's so weird how pacing can make an episode seem so long or so short. Like for me the Great Spontini was very short even though it is the same minutes the same runtime as this episode and for me this one was a little bit longer so I guess it's all a matter of perspective and one of those you know uh, time flies when you're having fun kind of things. I have a new obsession with watching the Rockford Files and those episodes are 44 minutes but it seems like it takes about three hours to watch an episode because not a lot happens. It's so weird and like today now with television they still have like maybe 42 minutes, but they cram so much in. It's like, ah, uh, they needed more time to tell the story when these stories were told with extra time to spare. So
5: it's weird. I don't think I could watch something that felt like I was watching three hours in one episode.
1: It's, it's therapeutic. It's kind of like fishing without catching fish or killing anything. It's you uh, you're watching basically cars follow other cars for half hours.
5: Your brain time. is, your brain is definitely different than mine. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah
1: working my way through. But, uh, for me, see, I had the experience, uh, that you normally have with these episodes. Uh, I put a lot of pressure on myself and, uh, because I had never seen this episode up until this point until a few weeks ago. And, um, it was odd watching something new to me from quantum leap because normally I, you know, know the episodes, sometimes backwards and forwards other times it's like i've seen it three or four times so you know i enjoy the story and it's it's odd for me one of the things about quantum leap is i enjoy it because i enjoyed it and it's one of those things like great music or or um art is the more you're exposed to it the more you see it the more you tend to like it Mm -hmm. so there was no feeling in my brain of watching it knowing I've watched it before, so I didn't enjoy it as much. But I don't know if that's because of the episode or because of just the way brains work and I've never seen it before. So I might have put a little bit too much pressure on myself because I was excited for a brand new episode for me. And uh, it just I didn't get that feeling, maybe that nostalgia feeling that I normally get when I watch Quantum Leap.
5: Yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. Yeah, like you were kind of excited, but didn't have that nostalgia feel to it, so...
1: Yeah, and uh, I've talked to other people on the crew, and some of them think it's an okay episode. Others think it's a stinker, so it might be a stinker, and I don't know it. But uh, I enjoyed it. There was a lot of good things in this episode to talk about, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that and much, much more after the episode recap. This is Season 3, Episode 9, Rebel Without a Clue. Original broadcast date, November 30th, 1990. Teleplay by Randy Holland and Paul Brown. Story by Nick Harding and Paul Brown. Directed by James Whitmore Jr.
0: If there is one thing that leaping is not like, it's riding a bike. Sam finds this out firsthand when he leaps in right in the middle of a motorcycle gang ride. In his surprise, having never ridden a motorbike before, Sam immediately swerves nearly crashing into other members of the gang before skidding off the road. Sam isn't seriously hurt, but the leapy, Shane, funny bone Thomas has a reputation of being the clown of the gang, the Cobras. And Mad Dog, one of the gang members that Sam almost rode into, believes that Sam almost killed him for a joke, so he attacks him. A female biker, Becky, comes to Sam's defense, and her boyfriend Dylan, the leader of the Cobras, breaks up the fight but not before Mad Dog pulls out a shiv and cuts the fuel line of Sam's bike. The Cobras ride off, telling Sam to meet them at a pub about 20 minutes down the coast. Al arrives, much earlier than usual, but only because he found out that Sam had leapt into a biker and wanted to check out his wheels. Al's first car was a bike, and he reminisces about girls on the back of the bike with him. Sam wonders if there's anything Al hasn't done, to which Al replies that there's one thing that is impossible to do on a bike. Sam finds a caricature that his host has drawn of Becky, and Al comments how a good caricature can tell a lot about a person, and that this person clearly loves to be free. With some encouragement from Al and some pointers on how to ride, Sam manages to make it to the pub. The cobras, loosened up from their bruise, cheerfully pull Sam over to them and playfully force-feed a jug of beer down his throat. Becky is writing something in her notebook and Dylan convinces her to read it to him, but he doesn't understand it. Sam explains that her writing is metaphoric, that you need to look at the words behind the words, and Dylan is reminded of his deployment in Korea, having been told it was a police action when it was really a war. Ernie, the owner of the pub, comments that his son is still missing in action in Korea and is likely to win the Congressional Medal of Honor when he returns, and that his bike, a 1949 Vincent Black Shadow, is still in storage, waiting for him. Dylan, impressed, offers to buy it, but Ernie refuses. As it is September the 1st, 1958, and the war has been over for five years, Mad Dog comments that anyone who hasn't returned by now is either dead or a traitor. Dylan shuts him up, and so Mad Dog instead focuses on Sam, finding the caricature that Shane had drawn of Becky, showing Dylan, and then demanding that Sam draw a caricature of him. Mad Dog is angered by a childish drawing of a dog, so starts a brawl. Al arrives and advises Sam to excuse himself, and in another room tell Sam that he is there to prevent a murder. Becky will be killed sometime that day. Unfortunately, while Sam and Dal are talking, the Cobras ride off. Ernie has some spare motorcycle parts, so helps Sam to replace the cut fuel line on Shane's bike. Once the bike is repaired, Sam trails the gang to the beach. There, a heavily drunk Dylan is verbally and physically abusing Becky, believing that she and Shane have started a relationship. Sam rescues Becky before Dylan can rape and kill her, and they ride back to the diner. The gang follows them, and when they arrive, Ernie is in a frantic state, brandishing a rifle and demanding they return his son's bike, which Sam and Becky have stolen. The Cobras leave, and the theft is revealed to be a ruse to get the bikers off Sam and Becky's trail. They are still at the diner. While hiding out in the spare room, Sam finds many years' worth of Ernie's son's birthday and Christmas presents. Al has found some information on Ernie's son. Sadly, he has been killed, and his body will be returned in a couple of years. Ernie loses the will to live and dies not long after. Becky wants to stay with Dylan and stay on the road despite his abuse. Sam tries to convince her otherwise, but she has been heavily brainwashed by what was written in On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Al is not surprised, as he himself has heard Kerouac speak with more passion than anyone else he has ever heard. He also reveals that Kerouac is only a few miles away at his holiday house. Sam visits Kerouac, who is heavily drunk, and asks him to talk to Becky, Kerouac refuses to say anything he does not believe in, which angers Sam, who believes that Kerouac has a responsibility to the impressionable people who listen to what he says. Getting nowhere, Sam goes back to the diner, where Dylan and the Cobras have returned and are terrorizing Becky and Ernie. Dylan threatens to kill Sam for stealing his woman, but Becky denies there being anything between them and tells Dylan she'll go with him. At the same time, Mad Dog breaks into the garage and does donuts on Ernie's son's bike, leaving Ernie distraught. At Dylan's command, Mad Dog gets off the bike, pulls out his switchblade, and attacks Sam. A swift roundhouse kick knocks out Mad Dog, and then Dylan takes over. Sam also beats Dylan in the fight, and soon the police take the Cobras away. Becky is unsure what to do with her life now that Dylan has been arrested, and Sam suggests that she stays at the diner as Eddie needs a waitress. She refuses, saying she needs to stay on the road. But at that moment, Jack Kerouac himself arrives, having had a change of heart from what Sam had said, and tells Becky that sometimes it's okay to just stay put. After that, Becky agrees to stay at the diner. Al reveals that Becky becomes a very good friend to Ernie and helps him through the news of his son's death. Having now saved two lives, Sam, leaps.
1: And thank you so much, Hayden McQueenie, for writing that episode recap. And thank you, Zoe Dean, for reading it. Much appreciated. So, uh, getting back into Rebel Without a Clue, this was a uh, the title anyway was a takeoff of the movie Rebel Without a Cause. James Dean, you ever watched that?
5: I yes, a long time ago.
1: You got one up on me. I've never seen it. But I'm thinking it's uh James Dean on a bicycle.
5: I like I remember parts of it, but I don't exactly remember the entire storyline. I watched it I think in high school. So, I'm I'm not sure,
1: but yes, James Dean. Have you ever heard of Jack Kerouac before or read the book The Road?
5: Heard of him, yes, never read the book. I
1: tried to read the book. I got two chapters in and I was so confused. I was like, I think this guy was on drugs, maybe drunk, now that I watched the episode, but I was I just I couldn't get into it. And it's one of those things that if I can't get into a book, there's no point in like forcing myself to go through it. I was hoping to be like, Yes, I read this book, it was amazing, and this is why this episode's amazing, because this and this book, and I just I couldn't do it.
5: Well, he speaks a lot of metaphors or in basically all metaphors. So you really have to have a... a,
1: What's a metaphor? What do you mean? What is a metaphor? I mean, why don't you just say what you mean?
5: Oh, mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm. But like, even in the show, everything he said was... Every Mm -hmm. sentence was very embellished and very had a lot of metaphors and had a lot of alternate meanings to his words. And he went on a quest for coffee. Like he, <laughs> he li- he literally just talks like that in the episodes. I'm assuming the book is a lot like that.
1: I quite enjoyed Michael Bryan French's portrayal of Jack Kerouac and my brain from this day forward. When I think of Jack Kerouac, it will be Michael Bryan French doing that part on quantum leap. And I'm okay with that because to me that was better than the book. So, uh, he uh, definitely, I don't know if the real Jack Kerouac had a um, charm and personality like Michael portrayed it, but the character and the actor definitely had like a, the it factor, like a machismo, like something that made you want to watch him and listen to his words. And you could see that at the end of the episode when he came into the cafe and to the diner and he just spoke and everybody was like giddy and happy and all googly eyed towards him. I felt that too.
5: Yeah. I, I, th- I would think that it would would probably be accurate. I mean, Al in the episode said that he had partied with him, so
3: <laughs>
5: I'm assuming they, they. Well, I'm assuming they. Somebody on the crew, whether the director or the the writer of the episode, knew of him, or he had a reputation, or something that
1: they very famous writer, and I'm thinking writers like writers, right? You know, in literature and. So I want to know, before I before I speak about what I think about this episode, I want to know uh, some of the things you got out of this episode.
5: I think that they touched on mental health after the war and what war does to those who go and those who don't come home and family members and those around them. I also think that it put a spotlight on relationship abuse and sexual abuse and emotional abuse i mean it was it was very it was very obvious in the physical aspect but there was an emotional thing there where she, you know it was she felt bad because you know of of how he came home from the war and how scared he was and all of those things and but how it's still not okay for you know him to treat her that way, and so you know that was a good i mean if you're thinking in the early nineties that was a was a pretty good spotlight to put on a on a situation like that where still back in those days of sitcoms, it was kind of a joking matter still um there was still a lot of sexual humor and and poking fun at those sorts of things on certain um television shows so that it was nice to see a spotlight put. Not nice to see, but it, it was. It's empowering to put a spotlight on something like that in a show like Quantum Leap, and they've done it so many different times. But to show it from that aspect, from someone who is technically a war hero, or you know, someone who was would normally be respected because he went overseas and fought in the war and, and what that did to him and what he's doing to other people. So that was an interesting thing to see in a quantum leap episode.
1: I personally had a problem myself watching Diedrich Bader be this, I don't know, heavy bad guy going through this emotional arc with this uh, PTSD or be just because I know him so well from the Drew Carey show and it's, he's a comedian and, it's funny and I see him and I want to laugh, but he's doing this dramatic character and all I can really see is him doing a caricature of it because my brain has typecast him as comedy. So like, it just didn't gel for me. And I think that's not a problem that with the job he did, he did a great job. Just again, what I brought to it.
5: See, I was actually, I I had, I had written that in my notes. It I thought it was crazy, especially in his, in the scene at the diner where he at the end where he's kind of lost it and i i wrote down that it's it's crazy to see him in that in that role because he does it well like he played that psychotic like smiling angry <laughs> upset um kind of over the line with his anger but with the smile on his face it was very like psychotic look to him and it and he did it well which is crazy because I'm used to him from the Drew Carey show which I looked up and his character name on the Drew Carey show which I don't really remember much because I watched it as a kid so but I looked it up and his his name on the Drew Carey show was Oswald Lee Harvey
1: and I was like
5: really really really?" (laughs) that was the name they picked for him
1: there might be an episode of quantum
5: leap coming up named that
1: or something similar.
5: Well, right, but not... No. I, it's weird that the Drew Carey show named a character Oswald Lee Harvey. I'm sure Wonder- there's a story to it. I, I was going to say, I, I'm wondering if they there was an episode that asked why his name is that. I remember it coming up, but I don't
1: remember the why, because again, it was a long time ago. That might be something we, we have to watch, because that's an interesting <laughs> but, uh, he, name. He definitely did crazy well.
5: Yeah, but when you're used to someone who's a comedian mm-hmm. you know seeing him play that kind of role was mm-hmm. was kind of crazy but i thought he he did really good i mean he was a believable
1: mm-hmm. psycho yeah i just couldn't get it out of my mind the whole time drew carey show so i couldn't oh yeah i couldn't get fully absorbed into it no like, i agree I, I wish i would have watched his performance before i knew him from something else because i would have gotten something totally different out of it so that might be uh, a negative that i hadn't seen it before
5: See, I, I, and I have people that I've typecast before, but with him, I was actually kind of like proud to see his range of acting. I was, it didn't ruin it for me at all. I was just like, wow, it's awesome that you can do that as, as well as, as the, you know, the comedic really, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, it's, It's just to see him go on that range from, Crazy psycho dramatic actor with p t s d to kind of
1: a goofy comedian normally I don't have that problem like uh when Adam Sandler does a dramatic role, I'm fine,
5: but adam Sandler's also been in a lot of different roles, yeah i mean it, it, that's like like um seeing Harry Potter and then watching anything with Daniel Radcliffe in it, you're just going to see Harry Potter. You're like, why is Harry Potter in this movie? And a lot
1: of people have that problem. It's a good problem to have if you're getting good residuals from stuff.
5: Well, I'm sure he is, but
1: (laughs) I don't know about, uh, Dietrich Bader, but what I wanted to know, see, uh, Josie Bissett and who played Becky, which, um, when I first saw her in this episode, I was like, Oh, I've seen her in at least five things. Like she's familiar looking, uh, But what did you think of her character? This episode was written by men. Story was by men. Um, What did you think of her character? Uh, Do you think it was was written honest as a, a woman maybe in the 50s in that situation? Or that put herself in that situation would act?
5: I think that it doesn't have to do as much with a woman in the 50s. It has to do, I think, with a woman who is a victim of abuse. When, when you are a victim of psychological, emotional, or physical abuse, especially when it starts in your childhood, you often believe that it's your fault. And you believe that you did something to create it. Especially if that's the only thing, you know, that you created, you made these choices, you created this problem. And, and, So, in that respect, I really do think that it was pretty accurate. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if really the 50s matter. I think that it probably helped in the fact that she wasn't standing up to him. Because back then, I mean, it did happen, but it wasn't as common as it is today. But women are still having that problem today where they blame themselves or they think that this is how it's always going to be and and you know it's their responsibility to keep something like that going to to please that person so like you have Dylan who was in the war which is especially back then was was a huge respectful thing i mean like even now it is but to have someone who ha- it, 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 it's almost like she, did, she didn't blame him because of what happened to him. So because he went to war and came home and had nightmares and, and the war really messed him up and, and they abused him and they, you know, they ruined him. And so she doesn't blame him. So she has like misplaced blame. So she stays because she thinks he needs her. And so it's I mean, it's like a complicated abuse relationship. I don't really think it has anything to do with a woman in the 50s.
1: OK, um, part of it, like you mentioned, was uh, I think. Dylan shows Becky a different side of him than he does to the other guys. So she has more sympathy for his situation, but still uh, it's sad that. She puts herself in that situation, but she doesn't know any better, and she I think she unconsciously is looking for something like that.
5: Well, you find comfort in similarities, even if it's harmful similarities. You You look for what you know, but I don't really think he was that different to her. I think that she just looked past it, if that makes sense.
1: Or understood the reason behind it, so...
5: Right. She made excuses for him. And she does even openly makes excuses for him in the episode. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, The only problem that I really had with the character of Becky was at the end of the episode. For me, if they wrote it in such a way where she decided what her future was going to be, I would have really enjoyed it. Like it would have been a growth for her. But at the end of the episode, she just listens to what Sam says to do. He tells her what to do and she says, "Okay, I'll do that. And that's her decision, but she's not really deciding for herself as much as just listening to another man what to do.
5: I definitely agree that that might be a a fifties thing, but, um, yeah, I, I think though she listened more to Jack Kerouac than to Sam. I think that if my mentor came in when I was, what is she, 18 or 19, I mean, she was a kid,
1: for me, this episode was all about seeing Teddy Wilson again. Uh, remember him from Pool Hall Blues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, of course, Scott and Dean are amazing actors. But for this episode specifically, for me, Teddy Wilson as Ernie Taylor, it's worth it every time to watch this episode just for his performance. I think he's an amazing actor.
5: I agree. I He he had this persona around him like you could really tell he was a good dad and he really cared about people around him and he was just like that cute old guy kind (laughs) of i don't know it was he he did good but it was also believable when he was yelling at dylan with the gun before you found out like what the story was
1: behind it it it. It was kind of confusing at first because it's like you sam wouldn't take the bike but right it was confusing but uh i think i caught on a little bit before you did Probably, but yeah, he was really good. It was a, it was a kind of a heartbreaking story waiting for his son to come home and he knew his son was dead, but he held out hope because what do you do in that situation as a parent? If -hmm. you don't have any proof that your kid's dead, the only way to keep going, I think is to hope that they're still alive somehow. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know how I would cope. Can't even think about that. No. But, uh, you know, he, he was coping the best way he knew how he was buying him gifts, giving him cards and waiting for him to come home. Um, but yeah, he he's an amazing actor and um makes me want to go watch pool hall blues again. <laughs> so so what do you think of bikers?
5: What do I think of them?
1: Yes. Um, I I have definite opinions, but what do you think of them?
5: Um I feel like there's two different crowds of bikers. Okay. There's like my dad my dad is a is a Harley Davidson biker dude, leather wearing Mustache. mustache yeah handlebar yeah. mustache, classic <laughs> leather vest, yeah, um, Good but he's guy. also but he's also like the the biker dude who does rides for children's hospitals, I mean, like he's that kind of biker dude, mm-hmm. um what he used to be when he was younger, I'm not really sure, I mean he's mid fifties now, um, but he's always been like all of his friends have always been like super kid friendly and and you know really nice people that. They just happen to look kind of like they could kill you. But Mm -hmm. um, then you you have, like, the younger Yamaha (laughs) bikers. I mean, like, there's just different crowds of of bikers. Mm. I feel like... um, There was a time in my life that I was like a motorcycle would be cheaper to maintain and and to insure and all of those things, but I think it's really dangerous and especially here in Florida, we if you have insurance, you're not required to wear a helmet or something like. There's some loophole that you're not required to wear a helmet on your on your motorcycle, which is insane because
1: you see a lot of people in shorts and flip flops riding a motorcycle. Yeah, and then you see
5: a lot of news coverage on people who have passed away from. Especially intersections here. There's there's so many fatal. There there are so many fatal motorcycle accidents here all the time on the news.
1: Well, you 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 see there's a lot of different types of bikers, but there's the type of bikers that uh you know go by the rules of the road and follow the laws, and there's those bikers that think that a three lane road is a five lane road for them that they can weave in and out of traffic. Those are the kind of people I think that uh, cause accidents and get hurt a lot but um uh regular normal bikers that uh, you know i think they're pretty cool there's some that to me like in this group in this episode to me it seemed like they all had um they all had problems and they all like were trying too hard to be cool like like if the biker thing hadn't been a thing then they wouldn't have said hey i'm gonna be a biker almost like they're posing as bikers i don't know if that makes sense like sad people trying to be cool That's what I got from this.
5: Well, I'm sure they all have some sort of messed up issues. They all seem Mm -hmm. to have some problems anyway, but they were definitely bullies. So
1: that. Yeah, it was it was weird. I don't know. But uh, I don't know. Bikers. Yeah, your dad's a good guy. He's a biker. And um, I don't think he's the type of person to weave in and out of traffic and go 120 miles an hour on a bridge for no reason. I don't, that I, I
5: don't know. At I this don't, point. I don't want to, if it, if he is, then I don't, probably not now. He might've been 20 years ago,
1: but. He, he might not have made it this far. If he was, that was my Who thinking. Knows? I could be wrong. I could be wrong.
5: So that kind of segues into one of my notes that, um, Sam brings up the fact that Al has done everything.
1: <laughs> right. He like calls you're, like you're a biker too. And in the look, he just like looks at him like, Really? I love that yeah. he called him out on it.
5: Yeah, that w- I I really appreciated that because we're all thinking it.
1: <laughs> yeah, every time. But in this instance, I was like, yeah, probably because he's an airline pilot. He's a he's a, you know, uh, Navy pilot. He flew planes. Those kind of guys usually drive motorcycles and race cars mm-hmm. and do all that kind of death defying stuff.
5: Which the helmets back then were not very <laughs> safe looking. Are those helmets or are they more like hats? They look like a leather head wrap with the ears cut out. Like, yeah. I don't really know what they They would probably help you from, like, getting scalped.
1: Yeah, road rash and scalped. But but yeah, no actual head in injuries. Death It's more likely in those, I think. And with the motorcycle, uh, when Mad Dog, who looks like uh, the toady from A Christmas Story All Grown Up, when he cut the fuel line on the bike, there was way a lot more fuel line left. And Sam could have just, like tightened it up again without that little piece that he cut off it was to me that was a big uh, error in the production because anybody who's ever worked on any kind of vehicle and i'm assuming that sam is very has good technical know-how since he built a accelerator chamber and a time machine that he could probably deal with a fuel line or a coolant line or something like that this being a fuel line i think a lot of people know If they had an older American car with a radiator hose or something and when it bursts at the end, you just cut some off and then you put it back on where it goes and tighten it up with the clamp. So he could have fixed it instead of walking the bike 20 minutes.
5: Coming from the guy who exaggerates every single detail that's ever happened in his life to make it more dramatic, you think that he should have fixed the bike to ride it two miles?
1: I, I think he would have thought to do it. 20 minutes that's 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 driving right so that's
5: my no my point is 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 you exaggerate every detail in your life to make it more dramatic that was the whole point of the scene to make it more dramatic that he had to walk the bike there
3: Mm.
1: okay i see what you're saying they
5: did it to bully him he wasn't i mean it, it wouldn't have been as effective if he was like ah i put the thing back together
1: you think dean added that little sunscreen line You know, uh, open road, wind in your hair, as long as you're wearing sunscreen. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. That might have been the thing now. Now, is sunscreen good or bad right now? Because it goes back and forth. I know it protects us from the sun, but it also gives us cancer because of what's in it. It depends on which one you use. There's
5: there's like a list of healthy ones.
1: Oh, good to know. I don't know that list. Does it say on the front of them they'll cause cancer? No. Hmm. I had the opportunity to watch this on DVD, the old set of DVDs with the music replacement. It's okay. It's passable. Um, But the Blu-rays with the um, original music makes a huge, huge difference in this episode. A very big um, jailhouse rock, Elvis, the great pretender, when uh, Sam goes back into the diner and Dylan's there standing by the jukebox and he uh, says something like, this song's about you because he was pretending and trying to fool him or whatever. But um, that line and those situations didn't make sense with the music replacement. So I'm glad that the music is back.
5: Yeah, that would not have made sense, I guess. They probably cut out that line. Or
1: I, I feel that they did. I'm not sure I didn't go back again again to watch the DVD version, but I don't. I didn't remember it. So, it's a silly rule we have here. Yeah, but at least they fixed it. So I'm glad about that.
5: So uh, to rewind a little bit. Okay. So... What are your thoughts on the fact that Dylan's friends were basically egging him on to rape
1: Becky? I didn't get that out of the scene until, like, Sam mentions it later. What do you mean you didn't get that out of the scene? I didn't think he was trying to rape her. I thought he was... He was messing with the zipper of
5: his pants.
1: Oh, I didn't notice that part. I don't know. (laughs) But, like, I... For some reason, like, I didn't buy the Jeopardy in this episode at all. I, I didn't. I don't think... I, like, it to me, that didn't look like it was, you know, going to be like in a bar on top of a pinball table. I don't know what you're what, what um, do you mean? Like, it didn't look like it was going to be a rape scene or rape was going to take place. And those biker guys look more like idiots than like evil people that were going to, you know, uh, hurt someone. I don't know. I just didn't so buy it. Like, what the, did you think happened
5: at the beach? Him forcing her down <laughs> on the ground. And th- what did you think that was? <sighs>
1: Bad writing, bad acting. I don't know. Honestly, I did. I didn't. I didn't see it as a rape scene. I don't know why. That might be more you than the episode problem. Maybe I don't know. But I, that just, was blatant. I, I, didn't, I didn't get it
5: out of that. So and like I don't know. But what did you think they meant to do there?
1: <sighs> I have no idea. It was, it was just a very confusing scene for me. The whole the whole a story really uh, confused me, and I never. Got with the A story, B story, Ernie, bike, kid in Korea is really good.
5: So basically you just ignored the the emotional and sexual abuse part of it.
1: I don't think it was done well. I was not invested in it and I didn't believe it. I don't even know
5: what to say to that. <laughs> it's, it's just a, it's weird like a
1: quantum leap thing that's going to happen on quantum leap. Like if somebody takes a knife and is going to go cut somebody's throat, you're not going to see somebody cut their throat on quantum leap right,
5: well, just like I didn't believe that Spock was gonna die, but that doesn't mean that
1: spoilers oh, he's still alive depends on um, that's interest. why I can say that oh um yeah the the a story just didn't do it for me, I didn't buy it i I thought there were like caricatures of people, not characters, like I didn't see.
5: I like want to dig into the psychological reasoning behind the fact that you didn't know that they would. I don't
1: think the guy from the Drew Carey show is going to rape the woman from the Lifetime movies. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I I just I I never saw that as what that was. I didn't see any literal. She was
5: screaming and trying to push him off of her.
1: Mm -hmm. And she still wanted to go stay with him. So I don't know what that was. That's called abuse. Yeah, it's sad. I can realize that would be horrible.
5: So she gives she gives excuses that he was just drunk, um, that it's her fault for embarrassing him, and the ward did horrible things, and those are the reasons why she stays.
1: Not good reasons. Uh, her LPs were on his motorcycle.
5: I I didn't notice the presents in the closet. Well, I I knew the cards. I must have missed the the presents in the closet the first time around. Um, the stack of presents I should say. So the second time I saw the presents, the stack of presents, I was it was. That was pretty sad to me.
1: Yeah, like that storyline totally hit me and it was very emotional for me because like I I guess now as a parent, I put myself in the role of the parent in that episode. You know, I'm just talking about this episode and the fact that Sam was there to prevent a murder in the A storyline and there was never a definite point in which he succeeded in preventing her death at the end. Oh, she didn't die, by the way, somewhere in there. But there was no Al standing by, 70% chance she's still going to die, Sam. 60% chance you're making a difference.
5: Well, the guys went to jail. That's why she ends up okay.
1: Yeah, but there was no moment where he saved her life. Obviously, he did. A cumulative effect from all the things he did. But it wasn't, I don't know, It just it, to me it wasn't well written.
5: Hmm. So what do you think about uh, Jack Kerouac's drunken author rant or whatever it was when Sam went to go talk to him.
1: I did enjoy that. And I liked the fact that, you know, um, like we as a society tell people where we were because we pretty much know that they're not going to be able to go back in time and find us. So um, like you'll see celebrities, you know, post on Instagram. I was at Disney world yesterday, for example, or something, but for Al to be able to know where Jack Kerouac was at that moment when they needed him, uh, I thought that was really cool and that he was able to just, uh, Sam was able to go see him. And, um, I think Sam really got through to him. I think that was, uh, Scott's best scene in the episode when he was talking to him and, uh, telling Jack why it was his responsibility because he inspired a generation of these people to throw caution to the wind and do certain things. And I'm sure for the most part, it worked out for a lot of people, but for some, it didn't just the scene with Scott and Michael, I think went really well. And, um. I don't know. It was it was believable to me. He looked like a an artist type, an author, a writer that was drunk and felt like he did have the weight of a generation on his shoulders.
5: And Sam's face looking at him was probably my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Sam was just like, "Okay, that's great, but can you please just talk to her?"
1: <laughs> the little the little uh, nuances in Scott's performance, yeah, definitely made that that whole arc of of Jack Kerouac. It sold it.
5: After that, um, I guess, um, they go to the diner and run into Dylan. And they get into a fight and Becky says he can't even do it in bed unless you fight him. Weird. What do you think about that?
1: I think uh, Dylan's got some problems. <laughs> and he needs to seek help. And, For real. Uh, she needs to get out of that situation, which thankfully she does.
5: Like that's really, really messed up level of abuse if... He wants you to put up a fight just to. I don't know. That's it, That's pretty scary.
1: Yeah, that, that should be like a red flag, I think.
5: So do you think that Dylan was always that troubled or do you think that the war caused it?
1: Uh, I think a combination of both. I think m- some people are more susceptible to uh, uh, things like he might have had a few screws loose and then he saw what he saw in Korea. And he had an opinion of uh, from what he saw that life didn't matter as much. And maybe it wasn't as real. He, he might be in, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about at all, but just from uh, my thought process was he just was in such a state of denial that he didn't care who he hurt because he didn't see anything as real anymore. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of what I got from him. But at the same time, the scene where he's like, Hey man, I was over there. I saw things. I I didn't buy that.
5: Uh what do you, what do you think about Al still fanboying over Jack Kerouac? <laughs> uh
1: I thought that was cool, but that was another example of him being everywhere doing everything. Mm-hmm. You know, he had met him, party with him one night. <laughs> but uh I don't know how many people did in real life party with Jack Kerouac if that was a thing. But uh it kind of makes sense, you know, after a college thing, would he hang out with people? Probably. You know, that happens. You know, I've gone to things where, you know, sci-fi conventions or pro wrestling things or afterwards, everybody just hangs out at the bar, you know, which is cool. And it happens. I've got some stories of hanging out with people from Stargate SG-1 at a bar just because I happened to go to the same bar that they did in the same town that the sci-fi convention was in. So it does happen. Mm -hmm. I thought it was cool that he liked him. I wish I could, could have read the book and understand more about Jack Kerouac, but...
5: There's probably like a documentary or something.
1: I should check that out. The, the, a couple things about the diner that got me. Are we calling it a diner a restaurant? I don't know what it is. It's a restaurant. Okay. It's a building.
5: Diner. It's not
1: a diner car, but it's a building. Diner. But anyway, one person works there, runs it, owns it, Ernie. From my experience, even the slowest restaurant, you need at least two people, one in the front, one in the back. I, I, I don't see how he could cook the food, you know, serve the people and get it all done by himself. But uh, I, I guess that's one of the reasons they set it up that way, because if they did have somebody run in the front, like a server or or something, then they wouldn't really need Becky as much. But it seemed like he had been working that restaurant by himself for quite some time. I don't think it's very busy either. Yeah, you know, I don't know. You get 15 people and it's hard to serve. And I'm not saying I haven't done it. I've I've cooked, served, taken cash and everything all at the same time. Well, and, and Sam was up helping serve. Yeah, I thought that was cool. They were making fun of him for it. <laughs> but he was just like, I'm going to help. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it, them making Sam drink uh, a pitcher of beer when he first got into the restaurant was a, a good thing, writing-wise, because that let him be more himself, where he was helpful, and he didn't have to pretend to be this biker guy. Mm-hmm. And it also... uh gave him more loose lips, let's say, when he was trying to explain to Dylan about metaphors and writing, which normally Sam, without the beer in him, I think would have sat back more and uh, analyzed the situation before he just butted in and, you know, started talking about stuff. I agree. So for, that was good. Oh, and the other thing about the restaurant is, I don't know if you noticed the sign in the background I did every time on the high def version, um, it said steak dinner. And it said what it came with, which was normal stuff, but it also came with spaghetti. I was like, what steak dinner comes with spaghetti? Is I didn't it, know. So. Is that, is that like just the set design people messing with people or was that a thing in the fifties? Yeah. Your steak dinner comes with spaghetti and carrots and salad.
5: Uh, depends on if you're Italian or not.
1: I guess. But, uh, I, like, I just really, I think by the fourth or fifth time I watched this episode, I was really enjoying the, uh, the set, the background set, and just reading these signs and seeing like the classic stamp machine and just different things. And of course, working in a restaurant for half my life, looking back into the kitchen, trying to see what the setup was like. And nothing really seemed out of place except for the spaghetti that came with the steak dinner. That's weird. (laughs) It is, right? I like the grape knee high soda sign that was on the outside of the building on the location. And it was right outside the door on the set of the restaurant. So that kind of tied it together. The only other couple things that I found out, noticed, thought about while watching this episode was uh, the guy who played Mad Dog, Mark Boone Jr. He's also in Sons of Anarchy now. Hmm. So it's like he was an actor, biker, biker actor. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> when I saw this at first, I recognized him somewhat from something. Right. So when I looked it up, I was like, oh, hey, the guy from Sons of Anarchy, which uh, I highly recommend if you're in the biker Shows. It was cool to see him like basically be the same character and same person, <laughs> but 25 years later in, in a different show. Uh, the only thing about that was uh when he was uh doing circles in the parking lot outside the restaurant, it looked more like Diamond Farnsworth than it did uh, Mad Dog. <laughs> There's definite weight difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had the curly wig on and everything, and, and standard definition, I'm sure nobody ever noticed. But uh, in in high def, it was kind of noticeable. Another thing I noticed was in the diner when Sam spills the the beverage on the caricature of Becky. And, uh, you know, he's wiping it off and it's crinkled up and then everybody's fighting over it. And then they go to look at the drawing and it's pristine. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Not wet. Mm -hmm. Not crinkled up. And uh, that was just like a big error for me and I only saw it the last time and I don't know how I didn't see it all the times before.
5: That's kind of funny. I don't I don't think I noticed that.
1: Uh it's a first unit, second unit thing. Second unit's film like insert shots and and things that not requiring principal actors or any actors at all sometimes. And uh like they do stunt work also or things. But um so there was just probably a miscommunication and by the time they all got it in the edit bay they were like Shh. I'm sure the editor noticed. Probably. But uh, that was just another weird thing that I saw. At the end of this episode, Becky basically decides to stay with Ernie and help him with the restaurant. And then she writes a book about it later on. So her life turned out well. Before Sam suggested that, uh, Al mentioned that she just pretty much disappeared. So so what do you think happened to her? You think uh, she still went down that path of uh, having relationships with people that abused her and just slow demise and never did anything?
5: If she didn't, I thought... Oh, I guess she still would have been alive. She was alive, but... So she disappeared. Disappeared pretty much. Probably not a
1: good future. Not a good future. So, uh, but now she's uh, alive as an author. Yeah. So she did get a lot from Ernie. Mm Mm-hmm.
5: Stability and... And Ernie lived longer because he
1: had somebody in his life. He wasn't lonely and... He got to be a dad. Yeah. I think, you know, once you're a caretaker, you feel more comfortable and more useful. Being useful as a caretaker. As promised earlier, we have a great interview with Michael Brian French, who played Jack Kerouac in this episode. I really enjoyed his performance, and I enjoyed talking to him even more. So here it is.
4: New York native Michael Brian French began his TV acting career in 1990 on the long-running soap opera As the World Turns, playing a character named Sam. That same year, he appeared next to our favorite fictional Sam in the Quantum Leap episode Rebel Without a Clue. It was among the first in a string of TV guest spots that would make Michael a primetime perennial for the decades to follow. In the course of his 30-year career, Michael has appeared on other sci-fi hits like The X-Files and Sliders, the comedies Roseanne and the Drew Carey Show, dramas like L.A. Law, Matlock, 24, and CSI, and in smash cult favorites like Prison Break. His cable TV work includes the acclaimed Breaking Bad and the HBO miniseries Madoff, starring Richard Dreyfuss. Michael can most recently be seen in his recurring role of Jack Pearson on the Netflix original series Orange is the New Black. But leapers will know Michael best for his poetic turn as beat generation icon Jack Kerouac in Rebel Without a Clue. Michael got on the road with Albie Burge to talk about portraying the generation-defining poet his experiences working on the show and his long and storied acting career so get hip you groovy dharma bums as the quantum leap podcast proudly presents our interview
1: with Michael Brian French hello mr french how are you doing today
3: i'm doing well albie how are you
1: Good, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, This is uh, an episode of Quantum Leap uh, that we're talking about a lot, and uh, it's interesting that um, you're playing a real-life character, and uh, not many real-life characters in Quantum Leap have had such huge roles as you did. Could you please uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with Quantum Leap, how you got the part, and uh, stuff you remember from filming of it?
3: Sure. Um, Well, first of all, uh, Kerouac was kind of a literary hero of mine, so I was very excited to get the opportunity to audition for the part. Uh, It was pretty much a standard audition in terms of its being, uh, you know, through my agent, casting call. Quantum Leap was a pretty popular show at the time, so I was excited about it, but I got all the more excited when I realized it was uh, Kerouac. Um, I took a chance that I've never taken before going into that audition, and is kind of a perverse tribute to Kerouac. I decided to go into a bar and have a shot of whiskey and a a draft beer. I guess that's it wasn't quite a boiler maker but yeah. you know, a shot and a beer. Yeah. Um and I figured, you know, this is what Jack would do if he was going into a situation like this. And it just worked out. I I guess I was kind of loose enough with the material that the director, James Whitmore Jr., bought it, and uh, I I got the job. So I thought that was pretty funny. To make it clear to anybody in the business, I've never done that before or since, (laughs) and I wouldn't unless I was auditioning for some other wild maniac alcoholic poet. So uh, that was kind of fun. Anyway, that's how I got the job.
1: What do you remember, uh, I know it's probably 25, 30 years ago now, uh, what do you remember uh-huh. about the actual filming process of it and coming in as a guest star on the show?
3: Well, um, interestingly, the first shot that they they did uh, in the episode for me was the one where Scott Bakula's character comes to my cabin in Big Sur. And this was sort of in the later stages in the 50s, I think, late 50s, of Kerouac's life up in uh, Northern California. And so he comes to the cabin where supposedly Kerouac was, uh, and Kerouac is in a raging, drunken madness. Uh, So that was the first scene we shot. And when I arrived in the morning to shoot the scene, Whitmore had put a bottle of wine on my dressing room table. And I thought, what? What? What is he going for here? So I popped it and I had a, a little glass of wine before shooting the scene and uh so I guess what you get <laughs> sounds like I'm a raging alcoholic <laughs> here, but I took advantage of that and I thought the scene was um was pretty good. Uh maybe a little over the top. I don't know. In retrospect I haven't seen it in a long, long time. But uh I think Scott Scott's character was asking me to come and counsel this uh, this young lady who was trying to make a decision between uh, Kerouac and the uh, Brando character played by Dietrich Bader as as far as the lifestyle choice was concerned. So that was the first scene I shot. That was that was a kind of a fun day. Exciting.
1: Is it more of a responsibility as an actor to portray someone who actually existed versus just a purely fictional character?
3: More of a responsibility? I, I suppose so. Now, you want to do as much justice as, particularly if you uh, really, really respected the character in many ways. I, I don't know if it makes any difference. You's, you really have to approach it as you would any character. Uh, what are his intentions? What's he trying to accomplish and get from the other characters? what's going on in his life that affect the way he goes about doing that and all all those sort of subtle things uh, we work on when we're we're working on a role. Um, I've I've had two chances to work on real-life people. Uh, One was Kerouac and another was Hank Williams uh, doing a play about his life down in San Diego many years ago. And I realized when I was thinking about it before I picked up the phone with you, I also recently played, well, not so recently, about 10 years ago, well, longer than that, Um, uh, Justice David Souter. He was uh, one of the Supreme Court justices. And uh, there was a movie called Recount on HBO about the decision, the Bush v. Gore decision, which was very controversial Mm. uh, down in Florida, but the Supreme Court made the decision. And so Souter was somebody I really respected. He was one of the dissenters against the the decision. And so it, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting to play a real, uh, uh someone who's lived or is living. And, uh, and there's a lot more information available about how they thought and felt about stuff and what happened at particular times of their life. So, you know, it's, it's easily accessible material.
1: Did you use uh, reference material other than his writing to, uh, put yourself in that mindset?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in regards to uh, Kerouac, I I read the uh, there's a essential biography of Kerouac by Gerard Nicosia. I think I think it's N I C O S I A Nicosia Nicosia. Nicosia. I, I, I either I either read that I read a biography, and I either read that shortly after doing it or dur- during. The shooting of it. You have to look at when that was published. Yeah. I might be talking through my hat here, but I did, you know, you read, there was a lot of biographical material available about uh, Kerouac, and I knew, you know, basically a lot about his, uh, quite a bit about his writing, and uh, to the extent that a uh, book like you know, all of his books were pretty much memoirs to a certain extent, exaggerated or hy- hyperbolized memoirs of his experiences say on the road and i kind of knew uh, knew neil cassidy a little before terawack one of the first books i read was cassidy's uh, the first third um about his life growing up in, in colorado so he he quickly became a hero and the beats you know there's plenty of literature about the beats and uh, their comings and goings and allegiances to each other and to Buddhism and to poetry. They were, they were a wild and wonderful group. Anyway, there was no shortage of material to draw from. So, uh, though, when I saw the show though, I, I thought, God, I don't bear any resemblance to Jack Kerouac. <laughs> he was, uh, he was like a thick neck wrestler, football player, he played football at Columbia. He's like a tailback. And, and I'm, I'm more of a string bean type <laughs> of character, but, um, I don't know. I brought something to it, I guess that that uh, got me the gig. So it was uh, it was great, great fun.
1: Uh, I think it went really well, and that's my idea in my head of Jack Kerouac now. So.
3: <laughs> oh really? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, don't watch anything else then, Albie. Just keep <laughs> keep looping. Put that on a loop, and uh, it'll be. Uh, I'll become Kerouac in some <laughs> afterlife.
1: In my mind's eye, you are. So there you go.
3: I can do worse, <laughs> except I don't want to end up like Kerouac, who yeah, who. Uh, who died in Florida at his mother's house. I think somebody had some, some gardeners had come in and cut down a tree that had been in the yard for many, many years, his mom's house. And he went apoplectic and went out and started screaming at them. And I think had had like a brain aneurysm and died like the next day or something. Interesting. He was, he was ill in many ways by that time. Mm -hmm. I don't think he even reached the age of 50. Did he? I don't know. I don't know. Not sure.
1: Did you watch the uh, finished episode of uh, Quantum Leap when it came out? And what do you think of the overall, um, how it turned out?
3: Uh, yeah, I did watch it at the time. I haven't seen it in years. I wasn't a dedicated viewer, mm. weekly viewer of the show back in the 90s. Um, I'm not even sure when, when did, what, the years Quantum Leap was on, was four or five years, I think.
1: Yeah, early 90s.
3: And I got to work with a little bit with um, Dean Stockwell. He was fabulous and great to work with. Scott's a lovely guy, but uh, you know, Dean Stockwell comes with uh, had, came with a bit of filmic history. So he was uh, and really you know available and supportive. Uh, they were they were great to work with. Uh, those guys. Yeah, I saw I saw the whole episode and I was pretty satisfied with it. I it, you know I thought I did a, a good job with the effort to when Kerouac finally comes in and tries and talks the girl into, you know, staying put, she doesn't have to go on the road with these muscle boys on their motorcycles. You know, she can find a rich in her life sitting in a chair. Um, so I, I like that scene. Um, and I guess there were a couple scenes, a couple of other scenes for the, the most vivid ones to my memory are the ones in the cabin at the uh, beginning when Scott goes to the, cabin to try to retrieve Kerouac to help this girl out. And then the scene where he comes, he shows up at, at some diner and uh, helps guide her to, a bit. And uh, I didn't have much to do with uh, Dietrich, I don't think and I had much interaction in the episode, but I got to know him a bit. Again, it's uh, you know kind of maybe a tribute to every the producers and the director. just great people to work with and be around. And uh James Whitmore was fantastic. He was uh James Whitmore Junior. He uh he was really a big Kerouac fan and knew the beats in and out and was uh so he really talked the language and uh kept me in the world, so to speak.
1: Looking at your IMDB, it's uh you've been on so many different amazing television shows, part of different projects. What are what are some of the things for you? I know for me, stuff that stands out is like uh, the X-Files and sliders and different things. And of course, Orange is the New Black. Um, but like, what are the things uh, that you look back on and say, yeah, I did that. I, that was pretty cool.
3: Well, you know, certainly playing Kerouac was great. X-Files, I think it was the second, or maybe the first episode after the pilot Um, It was it was great fun to launch that show. You know, I've had some nice uh, just some nice roles uh, in various episodics that are long gone and long, long off anybody's memory. So there were there was a show called Sisters I did, which was great fun working on Breaking Bad with Brian Cranston. It was was terrific fun. I sort of knew him a little bit before I went to shoot that out in Albuquerque. And, uh, you know, I walked on the set the first day and he stopped everything and introduced me to everybody as, as if I was, you know, the greatest actor on the planet i mean he just made me feel like a million bucks and made me feel very comfortable shooting you know there, there's some great many of the experiences i've had that were really memorable and wonderful or had to do with the people involved i guess yeah there was a lot there was there have been a lot of experiences that way you know, stage as well I, i've been doing a lot of stage work since moving back to new york and uh, you know, the immediate response you get from an audience is so satisfying, so gratifying, but you, you know, you get the, to some extent, you get that response on set from the people there, be it the grips, the makeup people, certainly the director and DP director of photography, you know, if it's a supportive, um, community on the set, it makes all the difference. So, um, uh, you know, my experience on CSI, Prison Break, was great, great fun uh, working with those guys. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of lot of great support.
1: Tell me a little bit more about uh, your Broadway. You've been in very successful uh, productions lately.
3: Yeah. Um, well, two years ago, I was cast uh, as an understudy in The Humans, which won the Tony for Best New Play 2016. Um, And it just got, it was just so warmly received. We ran that for a year and a half, which is almost unheard of for a play, a dramatic play on Broadway. This was also a comedic dramatic play, as opposed to musicals. Musicals often run far longer. But that was, it was a family, a small family drama set on Thanksgiving, and it was really intimate. All the actors were on stage. It was all, in real time for 90 minutes um it was just a real special experience i got to do it several times Uh, the guy i covered was uh, reed Burney, who went off and did a couple of jobs so i got to do that then the next thing i uh, i did was a doll's house part two um a fabulously imagined play based on Henrik Ibsen's dollhouse, it was a sequel to the original dollhouse, which was written back in the late 1800s. And if anybody's familiar with the story, Nora comes back to the house she abandoned to the family. She abandoned 15 years prior. And I uh, again, I covered. Uh, I was understudying Chris Cooper, a wonderful actor, mm. and those were just great experiences. Mainly because the, the writing was so fantastic, and uh, just to be able to do it, work on it steadily, week after week, even though I wasn't going on necessarily, uh, it was a great um, pleasure and uh, very exciting. It kept me interested. The Broadway. Uh, paycheck didn't hurt either. So <laughs> I, I wasn't going anywhere once I got those jobs. So. Awesome. Anyway, let's hope more comes along. Uh, I have an audition for elementary tomorrow and another show on HBO. That's going to be coming out soon called succession with Brian Cox. I hope I can book that one. And they haven't called me back for orange is the new black recently, but I've got one episode in the uh, season that's yet to be uh, released. So, you know, awesome. stay busy, try to stay busy. I'm a grandfather now, so that keeps me occupied, wow. but there, there's a lot going on.
1: Very cool. Um, uh, Love Elementary. Hope to see you on that. I'll be looking out for you.
3: That would be fun. I'll uh, I'll try to give you a call, Alby, if I get the gig and <laughs> let you know when it airs.
1: Thank you. Uh, that, that'd, that? be awesome. <laughs> that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome.
4: the project quantum leap and the quantum retrieval sister facility in australia you have been warned it is now 2020 and you have failed to prove that time travel is real one time too many your funding will not be renewed unless of course the team in australia can retrieve dr beckett by 5 p.m today sharp
0: Quantum Retrieval, an original audio drama by Jesse Newman. Coming soon to the Quantum Leap podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: If you like listening to this podcast, then I guarantee you're going to love Thinking Outside the Long Box and our scintillating interviews with pop culture celebrities.
5: I have a responsibility, not just to my son, but to everyone I meet, to let you see this is what you can do. This is what you can have. Look at how different I am. My God, look at all these people here. Can I be more different? Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop me. So why should it stop you?
6: Our discussions on the classics of pop culture literature and movies. This version of Night of the Living Dead, I regard personally as my favorite movie of all time. Oh, really? I can trace it back to that movie for my love for, for movies and, and, and entertainment. And of course, our intelligent discussion on all things pop culture reading passively
1: reading the comic book that's good
6: here i'll put it close to the
1: mic oh listen to me flip the pages passively yes and then so this is aggressive comic book reading
7: (gasps) oh man yes it's so good (laughs)
1: it's like that wow well maybe not so intelligent To listen to us, search for Thinking Outside the Long Box at iTunes
4: or Stitcher or find us at www.totlb.com.
6: Now back to your super interesting show.
7: Be Marked. Lots of movement. Fantastic. Welcome to
3: the Leap. Excellent.
7: two or everything. Okay, now what do I do as a cinematographer? I shoot film. Uh, the most special thing about the job is I shoot the film. And I am overlit with some hard light. <laughs> <laughs> Holy sh. Markham, bring me the 100mm on the A-camera right over here, Mr. Guller. What did you have on the measurement on the last position? Well, <laughs> Would you get out of here and talk about you? <laughs> talk okay. about you. Bye-bye. I'm going to say bad Bye-bye. things. Look so it out. Bye-bye. Come on through. Come through. Push through there, Joe. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, you are doing another one of those. You're punching all in a Picasso. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, well, okay. I'm saying nice things, and he's turning the lights out on me. <laughs>
7: Quantum Leap, I not only get to move from era to era, I move from uh, a brothel in New Orleans to the Vietnam thing, to back home in Indiana, to a pool hall in Chicago, to a jail, to a riot, to a rock concert, to a discotheque. I move week to week to week. different small movie every week. My job is to usually translate the written word to the picture. You create the mood, the atmosphere, the tension, the mystery, the eeriness, the comedy, a lot with the picture. The actors have the words, you give them the stage and the visual to work with.
2: I think subliminally uh, a viewer is aware of, of the look of the show. Can a viewer sit down and feel very comfortable in, in for our show in the era, in the year, in the style of it, and and he makes that happen. It's not the, the show isn't harsh or grating at all.
7: You don't want to have people notice the photography unless it is one of the characters of the scene. More than anything, the, the sense of pride that I have about the Vietnam show is the the people that were in Vietnam come to me with a lot of pride in it, and it's embarrassing. But they thank me for the show that we did because they feel that we captured what really really occurred
2: what the hell I get repatriated in 5 years could have been free I was free up here I was always free. A lot of DPs, GPs, GPs interned or director of photography folks, a lot of DPs are very laid back. Nice gentlemen, but laid back. But Michael is, he uh, sees a little different and, and not ordinary at all, yes? Come
7: on, Michael. Yeah. Give me a little feel. Oh, okay, we're going to take down to cover over here in this position when he walks away. He says, okay, thank you very much. I you leave it on Dean and go Hey, You
2: better be good.
7: Uh, you better be good. Good evening, gentlemen.
2: He's got a lot of energy. He's got a great sense of humor. He's very entertaining. He's like the star of the set. No,
7: this uh, nomination right is, there. you know, this this is the kind of stuff that just fuels you forever. And it's it's an incredible thing to be recognized by your peers. You know, yes, I'm I'm very proud of that.
2: Hey, Mark.
7: Ouch, ouch. Oh, Dougie. Oh, oh. oh that's a hard puff. Oh, you'll look better. All right. Am I beautiful now? Thanks, Dougie.
2: Without Dougie, I'm a mess.
7: The best makeup is the makeup you don't see. What we do is create characters according to the scripts. And... Uh, we uh, build an appliance or build a makeup accordingly. You have breakfast, Dad? Just coffee. I'll uh, eat breakfast after I finish milking. Well, milking's done. Chickens are fed and the hogs uh, are slopped.
6: We had to take Scott, who's in his thirties, and try to make him look believable as a man in his mid to late sixties. My day was would start around
2: two two thirty in the morning, and I would do uh, old age makeup for five hours. I'd shoot all morning as my father. I had lunch. I would change, uh, and shoot as myself
6: the rest of the day, and then start the next the process all over again the next day. You never really know that you've done a good job until the makeup is on the actor. And, and even at that point, if the actor isn't happy, then you really haven't done a good
3: job. Of course, some actors will never be happy because they don't like getting covered in rubber and glue. Quantum Leap won
7: the Emmy this year for Makeup for a Series. And and the Emmy for Outstanding Cinematography for a Series goes to Michael Watkins, Quantum Leap.
2: Scott Bakula, you and you're
7: listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Any radios in this episode? There are no radios in this episode, which means Christopher Filippis is looking back at another episode in this edition of Radio Sightings.
4: Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher Filippis, and it's time for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about all the vintage radios that have appeared on Quantum Leap. And here we are at Season 3, Episode 9, Rebel Without a Clue. Unfortunately, despite all the amazing music in this episode, there are no radios, so let's hit the road and head to the archives. When we last left off, it was time to take a ringside seat for all the radios in the season one episode, The Right Hand of God. Not so fast. That episode has no radios either, so saddle up, partner, because it's time to ride Widowmaker. Oh, boy. How the Tess was Won features not one, not two, but three radios. Tess's house is practically festooned with them, and all are examples of very different styles of deco-modern radio design popular in the 1950s. Our first radio is the 1952 RCA Model 3-RF-91. It's a boxy tabletop set seen on a table behind Tessa's couch when she wakes up from her heat stroke. This radio was nicknamed The Woodland. And I couldn't find out why, so don't ask. The Woodland takes advantage of its unremarkable maroonish brown plastic case and broad beige front to showcase its true selling point. An enormous circular dial. Trimmed in gold with two triangular flares on either end. The dial marker is reminiscent of a propeller, making this AM FM set look like it's an airplane that's flying right at you. It's really neat. We see our next radio when Sam is sitting at the desk in Tessa's study. It's a 1956 Packard Bell 5R1, and this is another case where the dial makes the radio. It sits bottom center of the large rectangular speaker grille that fronts this compact set, crowned by a semicircle of station numbers. It's reminiscent of a 1930s Art Deco elevator floor indicator. Now, the set scene on the show is brown with a snazzy gold speaker grill, but the plastic 5R1 came in a million different colors and color combinations. Packard Bell even sold the sets as kits that you could buy in magazines like Boy's Life and assemble yourself at home. Believe it or not, home radio construction was once a hobby for kids. And speaking of hobbies the final radio we see in How the Test Was Won is the same radio that sparked my radio collecting hobby. It's the 1948 RCA 65X1, and it stands out most for being an on-screen continuity error. When Sam is at the desk in tests study, he looks over at that Packard Bell I just told you about. Then they do an insert shot of a hand turning on the RCA and cut back to Sam listening to the Packard Bell. Look, error or not, I'm glad viewers get to see the RCA in a glorious close-up. The 65X1 is a beautiful set with a red and gold slide rule dial that tops a molded brown bakelite cabinet with neat wraparound louvers flanked on the bottom corners with two large knobs. It immediately draws the eye, and one immediately drew my eye 20-something years ago when I saw it in an antique shop on the east end of Long Island. I had to have it. And thus was I bitten by the radio bug, never to look back. In fact, it's my 65X1 that you hear clicking on and clicking off at the top and bottom of these radio sighting segments. Needless to say, I was thrilled when I first saw it on the show. But this wasn't the radio that prompted me to start the QL radio sightings. To hear that, you'll have to tune in to future episodes of the podcast. Now let's recap. The three radios seen in Tess are dated 1948, 1952, and 1956, which means that none of them are anachronistic to Sam's leap date of August 5th, 1956. To see these radios and every other radio that has appeared on Quantum Leap up until this episode, just go to the Quantum Leap radio sightings page on my website at deflipside.com. Once there, click on the Quantum Leap podcast link, and look for the radio dial. Whether you're riding on a horse or a Harley, it's worth the trip. Until next time, my fellow leapers, this is your Quantum Leap Radio Guru, tuning out.
1: And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment,
8: Quantum Deep. Hey, leapers, you're a rebel without a clue. Now you're in Quantum Deep. This is a warning for Heather, and any new viewers of Quantum Leap. This segment contains spoilers about the entire series. How much do we love Al Calavici? Most people think of him as the lecherous comic relief, but he's such an incredibly deep character, and his past has made Al the man he is today. Considering the nature of Quantum Leap being a time travel show, with the timeline continually changing, it is so difficult to write a biography for the character. But I'll try my best. Born in America to a Russian mother and a deeply religious Italian father, he had a younger sister named Trudy who suffered from Down syndrome, whom Al was deeply protective of. His mother couldn't handle Trudy's situation and left the family to marry an encyclopedia salesman. Al's father tried to keep the family together. But when Mr. Calavici's job took him to the Middle East, Al wound up in an orphanage and Trudy in a mental institution. Al's father briefly returned from the Middle East and tried to reunite the family, but this was short-lived, as Mr. Calavici was terminally ill. He told Al to pray as hard as he could, which Al did, but his father died anyway, which meant Al was sent back to the orphanage and Trudy back to the institution. Feeling that his prayers were ignored, Al turned his back on God for many decades, but in desperation asked for help once more when his best friend had been shot and it looked like he would die. Thankfully, these prayers were answered. Al hated every second at the orphanage and literally ran away to join the circus. He wound up on the streets, having to steal to survive. Probably to learn how to defend himself, Al studied boxing. When he was caught picking the pocket of a black pool player named Magic, Magic took pity on Al, took him in as a surrogate father and taught Al the finer points of pool. As it was the time of segregation, when Magic was caught playing pool in a whites pool hall, Magic was arrested and Al was sent back to the orphanage a third time. Al would not see Magic again for many decades. It was no doubt his love for Magic which fuels Al's activism in protesting segregation later in his life. When he was finally old enough to leave the orphanage, Al went back to the institution to liberate his sister, but she had tragically died at the age of 16 of pneumonia caused by the neglect she had received in their treatment. Al joined a group of travelling actors, and they helped him to handle adulthood. His first car was a motorcycle, a 1948 Harley Knucklehead. No doubt due to his confinement in the orphanage, he loved the freedom that came with riding on the open road and ever the ladies' man, usually with a girl on the back. Sometime in his youth, Al joined the Navy, and was given the nickname Bingo. He had some setbacks in the Navy, revolving around extramarital affairs that he and many of his crewmates were having. Al's first love was Lisa Sherman, a married Navy nurse. The wife of one of Al's commanding officers, Marcy, liked to initiate new recruits with sex, but Al refused due to his relationship with Lisa. When she was murdered, Al became the prime suspect, but avoided arrest due to his alibi provided by Lisa, at the expense of her own reputation and career. Distraught over Al's situation, Lisa was crying while driving, and the distraction caused a fatal accident which took her life. Al never forgave himself for the gossip over Lisa's grave that his actions had caused. In an alternate timeline, due to Sam's intervention, Lisa never gave her alibi before her death, and thus Al was put on trial, found guilty, and sentenced to die in the gas chamber. He was blinked from existence. But Sam found new evidence in Al's car, proving that Al's friend Chip was the one responsible, and Al returned. In yet a third iteration of the timeline, Al himself leapt back to keep an eye on Chip, and in doing so, saved the lives of Marcy, Chip, and Lisa. Al clearly had a thing for nurses, marrying Beth, another Navy nurse, and the love of his life. They honeymooned at Niagara Falls. Beth hated it when Al had to serve in Vietnam, and nearly divorced him when he volunteered for a second tour. Sadly, Al was caught by the Viet Cong and held as a prisoner of war for five years, tortured by being locked in a tiger cage that was too low to stand up in and too narrow to sit down in having to survive on weevil-infested rice and whatever rainwater he could catch in his mouth. He featured in a heartbreaking photo taken by Maggie Dawson showing POWs, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Unfortunately, the Viet Cong found out about this photograph and, realising that they were close to being caught, moved around a bit more. And this changed history again, meaning that Al was sentenced to even more time as a POW. Beth, believing Al to have died in his service, remarried, breaking Al's heart. Al later remarried four more times, to an unnamed Hungarian woman, to Ruth, who taught Al the ways of Judaism, to Sharon, who acted more like a mother to Al than a wife, and to Maxine, whom Al mistakenly thought had cheated on him. Al never got over Beth, though, and all other marriages ended in divorce, fueling Al's hatred for divorce attorneys. Al's abandonment issues also prevented him from being able to express love for anybody else, but ultimately declared his love for his co-worker, Tina, after receiving therapy from Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Sometime after returning from Vietnam, Al attended university, earning numerous science degrees. It could be his scientific education which fuels Al's environmentalism. Al rose through the ranks of the Navy, achieving the rank of admiral. He also became an astronaut where he learned how to fly aeroplanes. Al suffered from severe PTSD from his time as a POW and developed severe alcoholism. No doubt his heartbreak exacerbated this. He met a young Dr. Samuel Beckett when working at the Starbright project. They became the best of friends and Sam helped Al beat his alcoholism. While nowhere near the same league as Sam, Al clearly understood quantum physics well enough to be able to help Sam create Project Quantum Leap and as second-in-command in Sam's absence wrote the scientific journal articles explaining the success of the project and pled their case to the committee for further funding. He was so well trusted by Sam that he was chosen as the project observer and would appear to Sam as a hologram to give Sam information from the future about the mistake that needs fixing and to provide guidance from his extensive life experience. Al had to be very careful of what future information he could give to Sam and would often have to remind Sam of the rules of the project. When Sam wanted to help his former fiancée Donna Alisi get over her abandonment issues so that she could commit to marriage, Al was fired for giving Sam the information needed about her father. This was against the project's insider trading rules. But he was rehired after blackmailing Weitzman, the leading chairperson of the committee. As the only proof of Sam's quantum leap being successful was Al's word, This animosity between Al and Weitzman almost resulted in all funding being pulled from the project. But Sam unknowingly changed the timeline, with Diane McBride taking Weitzman's place, and the funding of the project was permanently assured. Donna did in fact marry Sam, and with Sam trapped in time, Donna made Al promise to keep their marriage a secret so that Sam could carry out any task needed during a leap. Al greatly admired Donna's strength and kept his promise. Al would again break the rules, this time making Sam attempt to stop Beth from remarrying. But Sam didn't follow through when he found out that Al was Beth's husband. Sam always regretted this decision, and on a later leap, he was able to convince Beth that Al was still alive. Sam's intervention meant that Beth did wait for Al, and together they had four daughters. Not much is known about Al's life in this altered timeline, but Don Belisario has stated that Sam and Al were always destined to meet and create Project Quantum Leap. One does wonder though, just what did Al manage to achieve this time around? Al seemingly knows everything and has done everything. Even Sam seems to be getting flabbergasted by Al's life experience. Look at this.
2: This is a classic Harley Sportster 1957, 55 cubic inches overhead valve. Sam, you're styling. Don't tell me you were a biker too. Uh, well, my first car was a bike. I had a 48 Harley knucklehead. Named after you? Then you didn't say that. I used to love to ride girls on the back of that thing. Ah, those were the days and nights. Is there anything you haven't done, Al? Well, there's one thing that's impossible to do on a bike.
8: So my question to you, Leapers, is there more going on than we've been led to believe? I submit to you three possible scenarios which could explain how one man has seemingly lived more than one life. The first and most realistic explanation is that Al simply couldn't have so much experience in such a wide range of fields. Let's not forget, Al has a direct link to all the information in the world at his fingertips. Also, as we found out in the leap back, Ziggy also communicates verbally with the person in the waiting room. It is possible that sometimes when Sam is faced with a situation he knows nothing about, that Al is simply regurgitating information being fed from Ziggy. With us living in the computer age, with more information available to us than our grandparents had in their entire lifetimes, it would make perfect sense to us that a show like Quantum Leap could try to take this very path. As despite the show being made 25 plus years ago... It was very prophetic and did really try to seem like what they were doing for the future could actually come to pass. I, however, have difficulty believing that this explanation could be true. Most of the time, when Al has given Sam information about something he's allegedly lived through, Al's responses are always instant. He doesn't take time to read the hand link. And it's very difficult to listen to someone speaking and then verbalising the same information while more information is being fed to you simultaneously. Though not impossible, television hosts often have to do this. Also, let's not forget, when Al hasn't had any experience with the situation Sam's put in, he's always been upfront about it. For example, in So Help Me God, Al says that neither he nor Sam have a degree in law but not to worry because Ziggy has access to the entire world's library of law. If Al is perfectly open about when he's getting information from Ziggy here, then why would he lie in other cases? A more realistic explanation is implied in the quantum leap novels. Although they're not canon, they do provide a great attempt at expanding and explaining the quantum leap universe. In one novel, we are treated to reading Al's point of view while he's doing his job at the project. It's explained that due to the ripple effects of time travel, every time Al enters the imaging chamber, Sam does something to change history. And thus, there are consequences to all aspects of everybody's life. When Al steps out of the imaging chamber, Ziggy needs to inform him of the aspects of his own life which have changed by the change in the timeline. Sometimes he and Tina are in a relationship. Sometimes Tina is in a relationship with Gushi. Sometimes Donna is at the project and other times she's not ever even married Sam. It's then reasonable to think that if the relationships of our main characters are affected by every change that Sam makes, then other aspects of Al's life could be changed as well. Thus, it's possible that, for example, in one version of the timeline, Al could have been an actor after leaving the orphanage, while in another he could have been a boxer, and in a third he could have met magic and become a pool hustler. This explanation is particularly concise in being able to hand wave any possible inconsistencies that the series has created in building Al's backstory. The problem that I have with this explanation comes from evidence we gained from Honeymoon Express. When Sam succeeds in helping Diane McBride pass her par exam, Weitzman is blinked out as the head of the committee and Diane takes his place. Al immediately notices and is extremely relieved by the change, while everybody else remains oblivious. Al notices the change in the timeline and remembers both versions. Now, this doesn't contradict what's suggested in the novels, but what it does suggest is far worse. Do you think you could handle history changing all around you, all the time, while remembering every single aspect of your life from every version of the timeline that you've lived? How would he be able to keep track? How would he be able to keep grasp on reality? I hate to imagine what's going on in poor Al's head and the state of his mental health if this is the life that he is actually doomed to lead. There is a well-known statement among people of faith, God only gives us what we can handle, which is meant to mean that any hardship that anybody faces can be triumphed. While people who are poor, starving and plagued with disease throughout the world would strongly disagree with this statement, As Quantum Leap has proven time and time again, the main characters do have faith in a higher power. And this higher power, which they have named God, Time, Fate, or whatever, GTFW, is what controls Sam's leaps. Now, if we're to believe that GTFW only gives people what they can handle, then he deliberately only gives Sam tasks that he knows Sam can accomplish. In many cases, this accomplishment depends on help from Al so gtfw deliberately puts sam in situations where he knows al will be able to help so realistically speaking al probably hasn't done everything in the world but because gtfw is pulling the strings and only putting sam in situations where he will succeed and in some cases gtfw will even intervene if it looks like sam's going to fail then just by the sheer proportion of times that Al's experience has been useful, it merely gives an illusion of Al knowing all and doing all. One thing is for certain. Al Calavici is an extremely entertaining, funny, well-developed three-dimensional character. And it's great to know that in the Quantum Leap universe, not only does Al always have Sam's back, but so does GTFW, making sure that Sam can always succeed and the wrongs will always be put right. And thank you to Dean Stockwell for portraying this character so brilliantly.
2: You're an educator first, but also a disciplinarian and a humanitarian. You need the energy of youth, and the wisdom of age. You have to be a mediator, and above all, a friend. The more you think about the roles our
8: teachers must play, the more you know they deserve our applause. Thanks for that, Scott. I couldn't agree with you more. Hey, Leapers, it's Hayden McQueenie here. Um, I'm actually a teacher. Uh, I teach mathematics. I'm an experienced tutor as well. I'm currently teaching engineering maths at RMIT University and doing a lot of private tutoring as well. I've recently started tutoring online. So if anybody in any year level, so primary, secondary or tertiary, needs any assistance with their mathematics, by all means, send me an email. Uh, my email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E at rmit.edu.au if you want to know a little bit about my qualifications i have a bachelor of applied science in mathematics i also have a diploma of education and a master of education i've been teaching in secondary and tertiary schools for many years And I'm also the numeracy curriculum developer at the Technology Institute of Victoria, as well as a five-time presenter at the Mathematical Association of Victoria Conference. So I'm pretty sure I can help you out with your maths. Send me an email and we'll discuss how I can help you out. So once again, that email is Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, dot McQueenie, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N-I-E, At rmit.edu.au. I look forward to hearing from you.
1: Hayden, do you have any trivia for me?
8: I certainly do. As always, most of this trivia has come from Beyond the Mirror Image. Thanks again, Matt, for writing it for us. In the original version of the script, there was meant to be a bigger confrontation between Sam and Jack Kerouac, with Sam getting much angrier and demanding that Kerouac take a stand. Chris Rippenthal has gone on record saying he would have liked it to stay that way as well. I don't know if I would agree, though. Um, I'm happy with what we got, and I don't know if it's really in Sam's character or even Jack Kerouac's character to get really worked up and really angry. So I think it worked well enough the way it did. I think
1: it worked out better than if they would have done that because uh, it just – it leaves Sam not even knowing that Jack Kerouac was going to come back. And uh, I think it uh, made the character of Jack Kerouac a better character because he totally didn't want to help and then he thought about it and sobered up and thought about it some more. And uh, then he decided to go talk to somebody that he influenced and hopefully nudge him in the right way.
8: Yep. No, I think, the way, I think they went the right way about this. I'd agree with you. Now, this is one of the few instances that Al appears without having done any research into Sam's mission. He just went there straight away because he wanted to see the vintage motorbikes. <laughs> Can't blame yeah. him. I don't blame him.
1: No, I, I like bikes. I like the looks of them. I just uh, get scared riding them.
8: Yeah, I've only ever ridden one once, and that was in Thailand. And I don't know if you've ever been to Thailand or have any idea what the – what the traffic is like over there and how everyone drives and rides. You definitely don't want to be a beginner riding a bike (laughs) over there.
1: (laughs) I I think I saw the video of the guy uh, on the motorcycle getting in four car accidents in two minutes.
8: Yeah. Well, when I was over there, um, what we saw was we saw this woman, no safety equipment whatsoever. And she had like a toddler on the handlebars of this motorbike, also with no safety equipment. And the toddler was just having the time of its life, um, swigging on its bottle. So
1: (laughs) it's like the '70s over there.
8: Yeah, uh, it it freaked me out, and uh, it takes a lot to get used to the traffic over there as well. Because, like, it's it's weird. Like everyone seems to know have this instinctive knowing of what everyone else is going to do so they all just go in front of each other and swerve and weave through everything and you're just over there crapping yourself and (laughs) they're laughing at you because they know nothing's going to happen so
1: (laughs) yeah i could see how an outsider wouldn't be able to groove in with that so um, i'm glad i'm glad i don't drive there
8: (laughs) oh well um now the title refers to the 1955 movie rebel without a cause starring james dean Have you ever seen that, Albie?
1: I have not yet. I hope to one day, but it's on that, uh, you know, top AFI bucket list that I'm working my way through slowly.
8: Yeah. Look, I'm in the same boat. Um, Let's just say, though, it hasn't affected our viewing of this episode. So um, I think we're okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we get the We get the gist.
8: Yeah. Um, Speaking of people who have only very recently ridden motorcycles like you and me, um, this Filming of the episode is also the very first time that Scott Bakula had ridden a motorcycle. And he learned how to do it under the tutelage of the stunt coordinator, Diamond Farnsworth, in just half an hour.
1: That's amazing.
8: Yeah, very impressive. And um, it just shows that Scott Bakula is willing to do anything and that he can do anything.
1: He can do anything, I think. Uh, this guy's amazing. Big fan.
8: Yeah, well, I think we all are. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think we really lucked out getting him as the star of the show. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, Teddy Wilson, who played Ernie, also played Jimmy Grady in Pool Hall Blues. Uh, he was the one that um, like refereed all the pool matches and was the like caddy of all the sticks for Magic.
1: He's my favorite probably in this episode.
8: Yeah, mine too. Um, the acting is amazing from mm. him. Uh, I have really felt bad for him when uh, he thought that his son's bike was going to be stolen. Mm.
1: He's an uh, amazing
8: yeah. actor, amazing actor. Yeah, but some sad news about um, Teddy Wilson. Like his character Eddie in this episode, um, Teddy Wilson himself also passed away not long after the filming of this episode. So unfortunately, we're never going to be able to get an interview from him.
1: That's sad. Uh, it is. Yeah, we'll never find out yeah. his experience, but hopefully we'll find out other people's experience through
8: It's a good thing that we're doing this um, podcast just for prosperity's sake, making sure that everyone can have their, their say, and that we've always got it there for, for the future.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's that's one of the reasons we're doing this, is uh, to get the info before it's too late.
8: Now, Shane, which is Sam's lead P, is a good caricaturist, and it turns out Sam isn't too bad at it either. So it makes me wonder, did Sam gain this skill from his mind synergizing with Shane's?
1: Uh, my thought was uh, he spent a lot of time drawing accelerator chamber designs.
8: That's also quite possible. Although I would think that his drawings would be far more technical, you know, with the t square and the set square and the compass and all that fun stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs> angles. Those are difficult. Yeah, hmm.
8: they are. Yeah, uh, I remember I had fun doing it in high school, but I have no want to do that <laughs> for any other reason now. <laughs> uh now during the brawl there's some excellent green screen work as the bikers seamlessly passed through al they are getting so much better with the special effects now we're getting on in the series aren't they
1: they are it looks good on dvd and blu-ray both of them came out really nice and i i think uh the special effects are getting better as the series goes along
8: yeah and uh, i think too in the future episode that we did in the past uh, the Christmas episode, um, we also had some fantastic green screen work there too. So hopefully this standard just keeps getting um, topped.
1: Agreed. Less cookie cutter, more like he's really there.
8: Yeah, it doesn't exactly play, It
1: doesn't pull you out of it anymore.
8: Yeah. Now, Sam is asked by Ernie if he ever lost anyone. Sam replied, I got him back, referring to how he'd saved his brother Tom's life on his leap to the Vietnam War. And I'm glad that Sam actually got to remember that because uh, we don't know what he actually does remember as he's bouncing around in time. So it's nice to know that he actually did get to remember one really importantly.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, helps him keep going, knowing that he did help his brother and help his family.
8: Yeah, knowing that he is doing good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, The biker gang is made up mostly of extras with only Dylan, Mad Dog, and Becky having speaking parts. The shouting is brought to life with ADR and some excellent work by the background artists. Yeah, they were really good. They look like biker gangs. (laughs) So much good stuff going on behind the scenes that we normally wouldn't have even thought about.
1: No, I I think that's a pay thing too, because if they have a speaking part, they get paid more.
8: Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Now, we see a rare example of Ziggy being surprised by Sam's actions. The supercomputer had not foreseen the partnering of Becky and Ernie saving both their lives. So, um, yeah, it just proves that um, Sam's instincts are pretty much always right. He needs to follow them.
1: Yeah, I think he's pretty experienced in this now. He's done his 10,000 hours, and he's a professional leaper. He knows what he's doing.
8: Yeah. Now, this is the second of three episodes in the series in which Quantum Leap would focus on domestic violence. The first being Season 1's Kamikaze Kid, and the third being Season four's Southern Comforts definitely an issue that um needs to be discussed and um as much as possible um there's far too much of it going on we and we definitely don't want that
1: Not at all but it's a it's a good topic to bring up and talk about and keep keep out there I think
8: Absolutely I think maybe the only other topic which comes up more in the series might be suicide because we've had a few suicide episodes so far haven't we
1: Yeah uh early on too
8: yeah, again, something else that needs to be discussed and that we definitely don't want to be seeing because there's far too much of it.
1: Hmm. We might talk about that uh, a little bit more in next episode that we already did.
8: Yeah, either in the future or in the past, depending on where you are fourth dimensionally. Exactly. <laughs> okay, uh, we've got some goofs as well. When he first arrives, the wind ruffles Al's holographic shirt. So maybe there was a draft in the imaging Chamber. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I'm just going with uh, they have... Uh realistic environment replicators in the chamber now.
8: Oh, that's a good idea. Or maybe they just have air conditioning.
1: Oh, yeah. They I think they do have air conditioning because when it goes out he has to put on those short sleeve Hawaiian shirts.
8: Yeah, oh that's right and he has to get uh Ziggy to blow him with air of the the handling.
1: Exactly. Maybe the next episode yeah.
8: that we already did. <laughs> yeah, that was uh double identity, wasn't it? Way back in way back when.
1: Uh something to do with a hair dryer?
8: That's right. They were going to cause the blackout. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Was a good time. Um, and when Al disappears at the diner just after the fight, Mad Dog's position noticeably changes. So, um, yeah, something going wrong there with everybody freezing and then Al getting – or Dean Stockwell getting out of um, the shot and then everyone starting up again. So
1: I'm hoping when they go back in and remaster it for 8K, then uh, they'll fix some of those things. I'm not.
8: I like it the way it is. Do you? It, it, it's it's fun, warts and all.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm not going to complain. They they do an amazing show and stuff like that. It's just uh, it's a product of when it was produced, so it's uh, charming. Exactly, it's charming.
8: Yeah, and um, if we ever get it back, then we'll um, what we will see in the future is going to be perfect. So, I think we can deal with a little bit of scuff marks in the original.
1: Mm, agreed. Yeah.
8: Well, that's it for the trivia. But we do have some quite big news as well.
1: Hayden, do you have any news for us?
8: Yeah. Do you want the news or do you want the big news first?
1: Let's talk about the big news. I'm super excited about what just happened. Can you talk to people about it?
8: I wanted to start small and build up.
1: Okay. Uh, How about we start in the middle and work our way side to side?
8: Okay. Well, look, the first thing, um, this is one that I was really shocked with, and this isn't the big news either. It was just something that I found completely by accident. I found a new Quantum Leap novel. Um, It's actually a crossover novel of Quantum Leap and Doctor Who. It's called One Giant Leap. It's by Simon Burnell. It was actually published three years ago, back in 2015. Um, I've read it. It's quite good, even though it does have its issues. Um, So yeah, definitely get on it. I know we're all fans of Quantum Leap, and the vast majority of us are also fans of Doctor Who, so I'm pretty sure you're all going to like what you read. Uh,
1: What Doctor was featured in the book?
8: Um, I think it was the 11th Doctor, so not Barty Crouch from Harry Potter, the next one.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, is it considered fanfic, or how does that work? Is it licensed?
8: Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not licensed, but uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious that Simon Burnell really loves both shows, so... Um, it, it's just nice having a new Quantum Leap story there for us to for us to peruse.
1: Absolutely. I'll check it out.
8: It's on Amazon. That's where I got mine. If you are going to buy it from Amazon, make sure you use the Quantum Leap podcast's kickback so that um, Albie and Heather can get a couple more dollars.
1: Absolutely. Every little bit helps.
8: Yeah. Okay. But that's not even the big news. All right. This is the mother load. For this big news, there are massive spoilers ahead for the end of the series of Quantum Leap. So Heather, you can't listen to this. And any first-time viewers, if there are any others, also can't listen to this. We have to thank our crew member, Alison Pregler, for this. She bought a bunch of negatives of promotional photographs that were taken during the filming of Quantum Leap. And in it, she found something very surprising. Uh, she found photographs that are evidence of an alternative ending to the final episode of Quantum Leap Mirror Image.
1: I am stunned and shocked by this. This uh, when when I first found out that this was in the works, she told me she's working on something and it's kind of big. And I thought, well, that'd be you know good something big after all this time for Quantum Leap. It's been you know, what, a quarter of a century or more? And uh, I yeah. had no idea how big this was. When when she finally filled me in on the rest of the details when she could, oh, my goodness. Uh, chills again, just like I had an MIA, just like I had a mirror image. Unbelievable.
8: Yeah. Yeah, I had to change my pants many, many times. I was that excited. <laughs> Uh, But, yeah, the photographs that she – because she's had to develop them, they've come out absolutely beautiful. They're of Al and Beth together. Um, Susan Dial is obviously in some um, aging makeup because it's set um, 20 years or so after Sam saved um, Al's marriage. And, uh, yeah, basically the setup from what we've discovered from – From the original version of one of the scripts of mirror image which don denied but we'll get to that later Um, apparently what was supposed to happen was al would be talking with beth in present day about how sam had left and now they weren't able to find him and beth suggests that uh, maybe the bartender who'd helped out sam might have been able to tell al where he's gone but al has no idea how to get into contact with him And Beth actually suggests to Al that Al should leap there. And uh, she also says that she's not worried that she knows that Al will come back to her because he came back to her from Vietnam. And that was supposed to set up um, Al being a leaper in season six, uh, trying to find Sam.
1: I wonder why it was denied for so long.
8: Yeah. uh, Well, look, it's Don Belisario's work. He's allowed to say whatever he wants for what happened and what didn't happen. No one's going to deny that. My theory on why everyone else has denied it, like Susan Dial, for example, I think my theory is they probably had to sign non-disclosure agreements. And uh, I mean, I know it's 25 years later, but legally she might not still be able to say anything.
1: Right. I'm hoping now that the photos are out, it you know, Pixar didn't happen. So now we know it did happen.
8: Yeah. So um, look, Don, we're not mad at you. We're just very keen to know that there is this new stuff available and we'd love to hear more about it so please do do get in contact with us if you're willing to talk a bit more about it, please don't be mad that it's been leaked <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. it's, it's just <laughs> yeah. an amazing, uh, amazing amount of things that had to happen for us to finally find out about this and uh, it's yeah. very exciting and uh, it's unfortunate that it happened after the Mill Creek Blu-ray release because uh, if they could have gotten into those vaults and found those reels of uh, footage and put those on discs, it would have been amazing. So maybe in a future release.
8: Yeah. Well, I definitely love to see it.
1: Yeah. I'll, I Quantum leap, I'll double dip, triple dip, quadruple dip, ho- however many sets they put out. Absolutely. A,
8: yeah. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's the, that's the really big news. Um, all the picks have been put up on Alison Pregler's Tumblr and I've also put them up on our Facebook page and on Owl's place forum so there are a few places where you'll be able to see them they're gorgeous have a look and i especially love all the Calavici family photos that are strewn around as well
1: yeah i hope hopefully she finds the negatives for that eventually too that's the only bad part about this is now that this is a big story that i think she's going to have a lot of people competing with her on ebay to find those uh lost negatives
8: yeah oh yeah I, I just hope she doesn't get into any trouble
1: no it's I think it's all right but uh yes, big thank you to allison this is uh groundbreaking um life changing for the fans of quantum leap to actually have concrete evidence that this did take place it's pretty pretty big i I'd say the biggest quantum leap news to come out since the invention of the internet
8: yeah I, I would say so as well, and I think it's nice too um Because some people had the thought in their head that uh, after Sam fixed up Al's marriage, then it might have affected whether or not Sam and Al actually meet and whether or not they actually do create Project Quantum Leap. Um, So at least we now have the proof that, no, Sam and Al were always destined to meet and they're always destined to make Quantum Leap.
1: Absolutely, because if they didn't meet, then he wouldn't be able to change history, and then they'd meet, and then they'd have a couple of doctors, a paradox.
8: Oh, look, I've gone (laughs) cross-eyed. (sighs) <sighs> any more any more news, Ed? Uh, no, that's about all the news I can handle at the moment. Uh ho- hopefully we'll get a chance to speak to um Susan Dial or Don Belisario or someone else who was involved in it and uh get get their two cents now that it's out. We
1: definitely uh know more now, so uh now that we know more we can uh, do more with that. So uh we'll We'll definitely uh, ask more people that were involved in that. There's, uh, There'll be more in the future coming from Allison, and uh, we'll have it all here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Also go to quantumleappodcast.com, uh, where Allison has made a post and a page about it, in addition to her Tumblr, high-quality photos. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's all over the internet. io9 just uh, made a put out an article about it. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah.
8: No, I think, I think we can be happy with the photos for now. Oh my goodness. We'll, yes. we'll just do that, that little bit of a push every now and then and see what we mm. can come up. Yeah,
1: that, that would be amazing. Uh, wow. One day we'll see it. We'll see it.
8: I'm confident we will. And um, my theory also is that uh, maybe one of the reasons that Don kept it secret for so long is um, maybe he didn't want it leaked because then maybe he'd be able to use it if there ever was a season six or a telemovie. It could be used at the very start of that.
1: Yeah, keep it in his back pocket.
8: Yeah, Yeah. but um, I don't think that's going to happen now, so I think we'll be all right talking about it.
1: That might be in his personal vault, and he might have included that in that script he said he wrote, so you never know.
0: Listener Feedback.
1: Heather, do we have any feedback?
5: Yes, we do.
6: So the first email is from Aaron Head Moss. First, let me say welcome back to the airways. I've missed you guys, but as a fellow podcaster, I understand when real life interferes in your podcasting. Take as much time as you need to do what you need to do, and we'll be here waiting for you. Second, another fantastic episode, both the Quantum Leap episode and the podcast. I loved hearing from Deborah Pratt and her thoughts on this episode. Wonderful. Not much to say on this actual episode other than I remember loving it when I first saw it and thought it was very dramatic, interesting, and thought-provoking. Regarding Hayden's mini Quantum Leap episode, at first I was wondering if that was true to Al's character, to think that gay shouldn't get married. Then I thought, another minute, and yeah, that seems pretty spot on. Regarding the mechanics behind quantum leaping, does Al see Sam or the Leapy, and does Sam's body leap or not? I think people arguing one way or the other are both silly. If you watch the show, you can see arguments for both sides, depending on when you watch it. I think the problem was, the show was changing for a while as the writers weren't sure which way to take it in both cases. So you'd see some of both. So I think both sides of the conversation are right. Mine, no prize, sorry Marvel Comics reference, for the changes... When Sam was leaping through time, even though he wasn't directly affecting the project, things he would change would have the butterfly effect, and unknowingly would change things about the projects for one reason or another. If you need or want examples of what I'm talking about, let me know, and I can send you in further details and information on my thoughts. Anyways, I need to turn in. Keep up the great work, guys, and remember to always do your show prep. Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss.
1: It is good to be back I think. I, it's it's been a while so uh episodes have been uh, not coming out as frequently but hopefully in the future they will.
5: Yeah, I'm pretty hopeful about our new system we have set up.
1: Yes, uh thanks to our producers uh Yeah, I loved uh, having Deborah Pride on the show. I always do. I'm a big fan.
5: Yeah, I I think recording that show was one of my favorites. And, and and I've talked to her before. We did the commentary with her before and that was really fun, but this was this was good to have a discussion uh, and pretty much a political discussion with someone, um, on an episode that they wrote so, so long ago. It, it was, it was, I was pretty pumped after, <laughs> after recording that.
1: <laughs> that was a good day. Mm-hmm. And of course, Aaron, uh, always, always send more information. Oh yeah. We can never have too much data. Thank you so much. And the next one is from Allison Pregler.
6: Hey, yeah. Wanted to send you guys a message saying I love the podcast. It's been a wonderful look at my favorite show. I love not only the thoughtful analysis, but the great interviews that provide a fascinating window into the people involved in front of and behind the camera. I tweeted at you guys and asked if you guys wanted any help. Not sure if my skills are of use, but I thought I'd offer. I'm primarily a video maker. I've been doing comedic film and TV reviews professionally for eight years now. I also own a dryer lint portrait of Dean Stockwell, and you can hear about that story in this series of videos. Anyway, if anything I do sounds like it might be helpful, all right. If not, just giving you guys a pat on the back for the great work. Can't wait to listen to the next one. Alison Pregler.
1: Thank you so much, Allison. And uh, due to the um, time delay in episode production lately, uh, she has already become a member of the crew, and you'll hear in the credits later. She was the one that actually edited the Michael Bryan French interview. And she also edited the interview for Dan Birch, the magician and uh, magic consultant in The Great Spontini. So she's uh, become a very valued member of the crew. And uh, welcome aboard, Allison. And uh, thanks for the compliments. I love them. Keep them coming, everyone, please. And it's as easy as that. If you want to be part of the show and uh, help us out in any way possible... Just uh, drop us an email, let us know what you can do, what you can help us with, and uh, we will put you to work for free. Because podcast. Heather, are you excited for the next episode of Quantum Leap, A Little Miracle?
5: Yes, I am. <laughs> I don't know what it's about. I don't think. It's do one we
1: did like years ago.
5: Oh, is the Christmas one? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah. I've actually <laughs> seen this one.
1: You've seen it before? How are you going to talk about it like you haven't seen it in the next episode that we already made years ago?
5: Um, well... They, I mean, if people really want my first initial impressions, they can go listen to that episode.
2: New York Times, month, Monday, December the 24th, 1962, the day before Christmas. Yeah, and, uh... I sure would like to find one of those Under my tree Reginald Pearson You've been picking up after Blake for three years Ziggy says this one could be a little Tricky Why tricky? You may have to bathe him How could Blake see you? Well, Ziggy says it was just a weird fluke. What kind of a fluke? Well, apparently his neurons and mesons are on a frequency close to yours. So I'm going to get Ziggy to shift my image a little bit, and then only you'll be able to receive me. It's kind of like tuning a the radio. There. Now, that should clear things up. Except for what I'm here. Well, to save the mission, I guess, but I don't no, know. No, how... no, it's to save Blake. Blake? Yeah. What does a man like Blake need to have saved? His soul. Michael is... Scrooge. He's alone. He's miserable. It's like Charles Dickens. Dickens, It's like he created his character based on this guy. So we Scrooge him. How do we do that? We take him back to his beginnings. We try and remind him that there's more important things in life.
1: All right. Which uh, a new version is coming out shortly. Uh, So uh, be on the lookout on your feed for that.
8: Uh, I'm feeling like I'm feeling this huge sense of accomplishment. Are you?
1: I am too. And uh, the most exciting part for me is I'll stop getting emails about where are the missing
8: episodes in between.
1: <laughs> I've been getting yeah. those for three All years those
8: email- now. Yeah. All those emails will now go to Don asking for the missing footage. <laughs> there, there
1: you go. There you go. I think we'll get it now. The episode after that is called Runaway. What could that possibly be about?
5: I don't know. I I got confused at first because the end of this episode for when I watched it shows her charm. And I was like, well, I guess they're running away. But we've, we've watched that one already.
1: <laughs> and that'd be crazy if it had the same opening and same actresses, just different story. OK, well, I'm excited as well. Looking forward to it. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. See you in the future or maybe even the past. Thank you for joining us
4: for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albie and Heather. With voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean, Hayden McQueenie, Christopher Filippis, and Juan Muro. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Hayden McQueenie, Allison Pregler, Christopher Filippis, and Juan Muro. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher Filippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren Space production. There's no question
5: where our daughter gets her dramatic uh, mm-hmm.
1: speech I, I from. Do a, I do an exact one second on pause, which is like an eternity on a podcast mm-hmm. when I edit that together. Yeah. Yep. Okay, you're so still So
8: episode's next, and is it? It's, um am I still here?
1: Yes, you're still I think you're still Hello. there. Hello. Hello, can I hear you?
8: Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all good.
1: Okay. Um